And uh, our lesson tonight I've called The Glorified Christ. And we read some scriptures last week uh, about that. Uh, but we're going to break it down tonight. And, and let me reiterate um, that uh, this study, uh, even though it's difficult for some people, it's important. The Bible says it's important for us to study this book of Revelation. God says, I'm going to give a blessing to everybody who reads it. There's no other book in the Bible that promises you a blessing for reading that book, only the book of Revelation. And the reason why it's so important for us today is that we're living now in the opening up of it and beginning of it. And if we don't get a little bit of understanding, there's going to be some things going to catch us unaware. Amen. But we, we can see some things and God has opened up some things. And we're going to, uh, 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 by the grace of God, talk about some of these uh, uh, tonight. Now, the picture that's up there, and I've got one there on your handout. When uh, John uh, had the voice talk to him, he turned around. And Brother Tipton talked a little bit about this Wednesday night, in his, uh, Sunday night in his message. Uh, and when he turned around, he saw Jesus. Jesus didn't look like the Jesus he knew when he was on the earth, but it was the glorified Christ. And uh, he was standing in the uh, midst. Well, I'll tell you what, we will go ahead and read. Go back to uh, chapter 1, verse, beginning verse 12, down through verse 16. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about with a chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. When John saw the vision of the glorified Christ, he designated him as one like the Son of Man. Now, this is in your handout here. You can follow along with me. This is important, uh, an important observation because the term Son of Man. Jesus is called Son of Man uh, several times in scriptures. Uh, matter of fact, I got it down here 43 times. And... Uh, there's a reason why he's got the title Son of Man. He's, he's got a lot of titles. And each one of them are significant and important uh, and, uh, and gives us an insight to about Christ and uh, who he is. This is important observation because the term Son of Man denotes the fleshly or physical side of Jesus. Whereas the term Son of God denotes his deity or godly side. 
Son of man, son of God. Two titles, one person. One talking about his fleshly body, the other his deity. The phrase son of man was used 43 times in the New Testament as a title for Jesus. Thus showing he had a real physical body which could be tempted and feel pain in the same manner all human beings can. That's why the title Son of Man is important. Some people teach, well, you know, Jesus didn't feel no pain hanging up there, you know. He, uh, he, uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't a real human being. He was a real human being. He's ever been human as you and I. That's one reason why he took on flesh and God became a man so he could feel that pain that we feel. So he could suffer like we suffer. So he could die before he did that in his original glory. He could not die. It's impossible for God to die. He became the son of man. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18, it's not on the screen, but... Uh, it's in it's in your um, it's in your handout. For it said, "For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." I promise you tonight, church. There's not nothing you will ever go with through in your life that Jesus hadn't already experienced it. He experienced every pain, every. And some people don't understand this. Jesus, while he lived 33 and a half years on this earth, never used a curse, curse word. But yet, while he was hanging on the, on the cross, he became a vile, filthy mouth person. The 33 years he lived on this earth, he never got drunk. But hanging on the cross, he became a drunkard. In the 33 and a half years he lived, he never committed murder. He never killed nobody. But on hanging on the cross, he became a murderer. The Bible tells us that while he was on the cross, he became everything that we are and that we could possibly do. So all of our, all of our junk could be crucified. Hallelujah. That's why he, he did, was able to do that. As, a, as the Son of Man. Another important observation we should make is the phrase, one like or one similar to the Son of Man. John had known Jesus well enough to realize the one he was now beholding was different in some ways. He still could recognize the humanity of the Lord, yet there were marked changes in his physical appearance. Right, now just keep you focused. Uh, you can look, the, the, the picture on your handout is not as big, you can't make it out. But now we studied last last week uh, about, we went, briefly went over it, but I didn't bring out every everything about that, what, what it represents. The Bible said, um, what John said, he was clothed with a garment to the feet. Okay, out to the side, it lets you know what that means. It speaks of the veil of his flesh that covers his glory. Under the tabernacle, the presence of God, God himself came down to the tabernacle of Moses 
behind a veil. Couldn't nobody go behind that veil, just the high priest. And he could only go once a year. Okay? His body was like a veil that hid the glory of who he really was. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. So the garment down to the feet speaks of the veil of his flesh. His flesh was a veil that covered his glory. Golden band across his chest speaks of kingly authority. Head and hair white as snow speaks of divine wisdom. Eyes like fire speaks of his ability to pierce beyond the flesh. Hallelujah. He can look right in through you and see what you really are. Amen. Hallelujah. Feet like brass. See, I mean, oh, this picture of how Christ appeared, it's, it's not just a bunch of stuff. All of these things got a meaning. Feet like brass speaks of divine judgment. Brass represents judgment in the scriptures. Then it says, voice like many waters speaks of the power and authority of his spoken word, Lord. Now, we mentioned this one last week. Seven stars in his right hand speaks of the guidance of the seven angels of the churches. What, who are the angels of the seven churches? I'm, I, I told you that the last time. To the angel of each church. Amen. The angels are, are, the, are the ministers of each church. The pastors, the ministers the, uh, uh, of each church. Sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth speaks of the word of God used to judge. Said his countenance was like the sun. It speaks of his radiant glory, the Shekinah. Hallelujah. The Shekinah glory. Uh, other night, Brother Scott mentioned, you know, he's, he's heard us talk. He says, you know, he said, I want to be in a service. I can see, see that glory cloud. Uh, I have been in services it's been many years. It was. It was. It was. It was back many years ago. I have. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I've been in the. I've been in a service where the power of God, the Shekinah glory, would step right in, and it would look like it'd be a smoky haze in the place. Amen. I've witnessed that before. That's the glory of God. That's Shekinah glory of God. That was what was behind the veil of the tabernacle of Moses. And then it said, standing in the midst of seven lampstands, speaks of his presence in the church. Those seven candlesticks that he is standing in the midst of are the seven churches. Or also church ages. Now, when he appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, he gave John... A threefold directive, and a directive for John to write. And I've got this on your handout. He said, "You write the things which thou hast seen." Talking about the glorified Christ, what I've just, how you've seen me and how I appear. I want you to write this down. See, Jesus wanted the people in the church to know about this. He said, "You you write what you see, and you send it to the churches." 
God wanted everybody to get a hold of this. He said, you write the things which you have seen. Number two, write the things which are the things which are the church age, the period of grace, the time that the church is on this earth, and the things which shall be hereafter, after the church age, after all this other stuff, tribulation period, final consummation, uh, and um, the chapters in Revelation and all these um, uh, talks about. So uh, I wanted to add this in uh, to, uh, to last week's lesson because these things here, uh, like I said, is some things that I just I came up with when I found my, my, my things on uh, uh, the book of Revelation. And we're going to go immediately now into the third uh, lesson, the seven historical church ages. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to read slow, and I want everybody to understand what we're saying about this. When Christ appeared to John on Patmos Island, he instructed John to record what he saw and send it to the seven churches in Asia. The question that has long been of major concern is, why these particular churches? Why just seven churches? I told you last time, there were, there were hundreds of churches uh, by this time. Uh, this was about, about 96 to 98 A.D., and the church had grown all over the whole Roman Empire. Why did he, he want to send these uh, uh, to uh, seven churches? Uh, Paul had started many others with his missionary journeys. Now, the obvious reason of locality cannot be overlooked. Now, there again, you can't see good the picture here, so I'm going to put this up. And this map here, you can see where each one of those cities was. And let me stop and interject something else right now that talks about how uh, divided the body of Christ is. He did not write to the churches, plural, of Ephesus, the churches of Smyrna. He said to the church. Uh, I've heard some people talk, and, and, and it's really... Uh, a, a lack of, I, I think, of spiritual understanding. They say, well, you know, bless God, uh, we, ought, we ought to have a church on every corner. Really? A church on every corner and each church have a, just a handful, five or six people? That's how come they can't get nothing done. you got churches scattered around everywhere. They can't come together. If you got 20 churches in a town and all 20 churches don't have but five or six people, why can't those churches combine into one where they can have better finances and better people that they can get more done in the city? i tell you why. Because you got too many people wants to big run the show. Amen. That's been one of the downfalls of, of Pentecost for a long time. 
Somebody get, um, uh, gets a wild hair sometime and they, they, they want to run the show and if they can't do it where, where they at, they'll take two or three members and go somewhere else and, and, and find a little old building somewhere and open up another church. Did God send them there? No, God didn't send them there. No. To the church, not the churches of Ephesus. I got history that proves that every, every city you went to, there was only one church in that town. You went to that town that had the true church. We've got to get, somebody made a comment, um, uh, prayer night, I don't remember now who it was, but there's one reason why we got some persecution coming and why we're going to have to do some suffering because we got to have something that's going to cause us to tear down these stinking walls and unify the body of Christ. Hallelujah. We can't seem to want to do it on our own. Amen. And God, with His love and His mercy and His long-suffering, keeps long-suffering, giving us opportunity after opportunity. Yeah, I mean, you take Bishop Samuel Smith. He, he does a fantastic job. But you know what? Stop and think about it. There is 180-something different apostolic organizations in the world and they'll come together for a few days once a year to have a meeting, but then they they go back to their own organizations, and they all they're not unified, you know. Uh, and one of the prayers that Jesus prayed, he says, "Lord, I pray that they will be one." God wants us to be one. He wants us to have unity. He wants us. To love one another. Um, the Lord had to uh, get my attention. He's done it more than once. After evangelizing for about 20 years, uh, the door opened for me to pastor. And uh, started pastoring in Bowling Green. And I did not want to let go of that job I had. See, that was 1987. I got a copy of my tax files from 1987, the last year I worked at state, used to be state uh, uh, stove. And back in 1987, you know, I mean, I'd built up, I was making over $30,000 a year. That was good money back in 1987. I'd been there 13 years. I didn't want to walk away from that. I had a, I had, I had the beginning of retirement uh, built up. And so I knew God wanted, wanted me to pastor that church. So we moved to Bowling Green. An old stubborn boy here. Guess what? I, I got up early enough in Bowling, uh, uh, where, we, where we lived and I drove from there to Ashland City five days a week. Time, you know what it was like working in that hot place in the summertime. When you left there, you know you'd put in a day's work. <laughs> right. I wasn't quite as big around here as I was back then. I mean, I am now. I, back then, I wasn't that, quite as big. And then driving that long distance, you know, I was wrestling against God. Now, I know nobody else here has ever done that. 
Amen. I'm the only one here that's ever done that. But finally, I was running out of, uh, uh, I was operating a machine called a seam welder. I, I was the one that I put these big flat pieces of metal in and it pushed it in and it rolled it up uh, in the shape of a tank and pushed it out. And I watched it as there was a welding tip there and it pushed uh, under and, and welded that seam. And uh, I was watching that thing and I had my hand on it and that chain on the end of that dog that pushed that thing came, came loose and it uh, caught me on this finger right here and I, I still got the scar comes up and down around right here. And when that thing caught my finger, man, I, uh, I, I jerked it up and I seen this whole end of this finger hanging over here like this. And you know what? This hand here didn't say all hand. You, you talked about me last week or that you did something against me. You know what? This, my whole body hurt for that, for that one thing. And this hand, when I looked up and I saw that thing hanging out like this, I thought, I thought my first word was my word. And it was like, ah! And all oh, man, it was like thinking. This hand came to the rescue and I had it up and I told those guys, if you watch this thing, I got to get out of here. That's what God expects from Christians. When somebody gets hurt, expects the whole body to come to the rescue. Amen. We're supposed to have... you. There's all kind of talk why we don't see the miracles that we used to see and all. And I don't... You know, some of them may sound pretty good. I'm going to tell you what, as long as there's no unity the, and, and the body don't come together as one, then the head is not going to sit down on a dysfunctional body. And the head is Christ, not the pastor. Christ is the head. Amen. And he wants us to have unity. And we have a hard time with that. And our stubbornness to that, just like my stubbornness, not willing to let go and put my full time, because God wanted my full time up there. You know what? After that, <laughs> I was I was off for uh, a couple of days after they sold that finger top end of that finger back off. And when I come come back to work, guess what? I went straight into the supervisor's office and I put in my resignation. I said, I says I got to go. God don't have to. God don't have to yell at me but one time. Hallelujah. Amen. And uh, I did that, and I went up there to a church with 75 people, and in six months was running 150. I had never seen growth like that in my life anymore. Uh, and, uh, but it takes unity of the body. It takes unity of the body. And because we're not willing to to unify, uh, and we get the isms and the schisms out. Uh, Christ can't move like he wants to move, so his long suffering is going to end one of these days, and it's soon, it's already happening in a lot of places around the world. It's already happening. Amen. We're going to see more and more persecution. All right. The um, seven historical church ages. Let's read uh, this a little bit. Um, 
Although we can see the obvious uh, doesn't negate the prophetic characteristics of the letter. All those churches are out there together. And if you can see out there in, in the Mediterranean Sea, you see the word Patmos. That's where that little island was. Now, uh, although we can see the obvious doesn't negate the prophetic characteristics of the letter, the revelation stands alone in terms of symbolism and allegorial style in which it was written. The reader of John's letter at the close of the first century would receive from the book that which was revelant in that day, while subsequent readers in future generations would receive uh, from the book that which would be revelant in, uh, in their day. 